Okay. No Good morning. Happy Friday, y'all. Welcome to the talk edition of Love Babs Love Talk. I am excited today because my guest is Regina Mason. Regina Mason is the uh, document has a documentary of a film that she created based on um, the search for William Grimes. And her story is so American, so black, so rich. <laughs> so let me let me get this right, Regina. So you were working on a fifth grade project on family roots. Yes. And way back in nineteen seventy one. Girl in nineteen seventy one. And so you it's it you came you came upon this fifteen year cross country saga. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. I uh well the, the let's say this, the seed was planted in that fifth grade assignment. And it was an assignment where I had to look at slavery front and center in my own family. I had never done that before. I, of course, knew about slavery, but it was always those people over there. It was in the abstract. It was never personal, never personalized until I was faced with asking my mother, where are we from? And that just started a whole conversation of family history, some I knew, some I didn't, and I learned for the first time that her grandfather had been born a slave and that she actually knew him. So that that floored me because it really showed me how closely, how close slavery was. It was just a couple generations away. And I always thought, oh, it was hundreds and hundreds of years ago. This is from the perspective of a fifth grader. So... Um, you know, my mother tried to impart, you know, um, positive things about my history, but I just couldn't get beyond slavery. I couldn't get beyond it. It was too much in that one city to do that. So she took me to see my Aunt Catherine, who we considered her the family historian, and she knew a lot more about the family history than my mother. And Auntie Catherine loved to tell stories. And uh, she told me that someone by the last name of Grimes from New Haven, Connecticut, had a connection to the Underground Railroad. That wow. was huge in my mind as a fifth grader. Because it's still it huge in my mind. Story. It's still huge. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Absolutely. It, it spoke of resistance, and that's what I needed to hear. I didn't want to hear oh, we we were slaves saved by the the noble north. You know, I wanted to know that somebody in my family was active against this institution. And so I begged Auntie Catherine for more information, but she had given me all that she knew and what she gave me were those three clues. And it wasn't until I was a young wife and mother some 20 some years after that um class assignment that I really thought about Grimes and I was looking at the faces of my babies and I you know I wanted them to know their their history and I thought you know let me pick up genealogy let me see whether or not I could find 
information about my family and information about this story that my aunt had given me all those years ago. Well, this is... And lo and behold... <laughs> I love this treasure. story. Go ahead. Go ahead. So, so what I, makes this um, story much... What makes it crazy, 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 is that the story of um, William Grimes, um, he... He was a former slave who escaped to freedom. He lived in New Haven, penned the first fugitive slave narrative in U.S. history. Like he wrote a book. Like he wrote a book about his story. (laughs) He did. Unedited, unassisted, not sponsored by any white people. He knew that he could do this himself, and he did it. Powerful, 1825, at a time when black autobiography was very rare. Then he had the nerve, (laughs) the audacity to write boldly on the cover of his book that he wrote it himself. Mm -hmm. That was so revolutionary. Mm -hmm. I mean, he, you know, black people at that time were still considered three-fifths of a person. They, They were not allowed to read or write. They could be thrown in jail for that worse they could be killed for that or sold to another plantation there were all all these ramifications but he boldly asserted his citizenship in this country at a time when we didn't have that luxury he just claimed it which was awesome so tell me about What's what inspired you to create a documentary? It's one thing to like look up your roots, find your roots, but then you said, "Oh, this ought to be told in another kind of way. Let right. me further the story." Right. Absolutely. Um, a very good friend of mine who's actually married into um, the family is a filmmaker and he had done um, a lot of music videos. He had done short documentaries and, and so forth. And over the years, in fact, I didn't even know, and this is Sean Durant, who is the producer and director. I didn't even know the depth of his skills and, and what path he was on. But he had heard every 4th of July we got together at a family's home, and it was like a mini reunion. That's how we kept in touch. And I would share little snippets of, oh, I found this, I found that, and oh, my God. I I teamed up with Bill Andrews, an expert in early African-American autobiography, and we're going to do a book. We're going to republish the Grimes narrative with all these updates. And so um, I invited him to my first Bay Area book signing. Sean was in the audience, and he said, you know, this story is so rich. You've got to put visuals to it. You know, why didn't we know about William Grimes in history? Why why is it that um, he wasn't important enough to keep his narrative alive, you know, uh, 
in schools Mm -hmm. and so forth. And so we decided to follow William Grimes' example and take history into our own hands. And by doing that, Sean said, look, I want to do a documentary. I don't know how we're going to do it. I don't know where the money's going to come from, but we're going to figure out a way. Just like William Grimes figured out a way to write his book. Just like you, meaning me, figured out a way to partner with someone to get his book republished. So we just gave ourselves permission, and William Grimes was our example. And so we, it was a grassroots thing. We called upon any and everybody that had any um, understanding of filmmaking and who, you know, had aspirations of breaking into the business and so forth. We did crowdfunding. We got a little seed money, and we started the first leg of uh, filming. And then we'd go back, regroup, and we'd do some fundraisers in the Bay Area, and then we'd circle back and do another leg of filming. So it was done in pieces until after seven years of not giving up, we finally had a movie. Wow. (laughs) So, I mean, you do what you have to do to get things done that you are passionate about. Absolutely. And before we we had a whole bevy of people that just said, hey, we want to help in any way we can. You know, we we could offer this skill set or what have you. And so that's how this movie was made. So you actually saw, as I understand it, you saw a copy of the original copy of the book because it's here. The New Haven Museum had yes. or some museum has it here. And oh, my goodness. And you yes. saw it. Well, let me tell you. I mean, I, I I have chills just thinking about that. Well, first of all, I'd never dreamed that, first of all, that my ancestor wrote a book, number one, and that uh, how pioneering that it was, number two, and the fact that it was so old that it would be in somebody's library somewhere. And it turns out that the 1825 edition of the Grimes narrative is at the Beinecke Library at Yale. Oh my God, I'm going to go find that book. I love the Beinecke. It's one of my favorite places in just about anywhere. So I'm going to go look for this book. But it's there. It's there. It is there. But let me tell you, William Grimes wrote twice in his life. So he wrote in 1825 and he turned around in 1855 when he was a much older man. He wrote an added chapter to the same book. And he published it in 1855 in New Haven. And on the cover, there's an image of what he looked like in old age. And that particular book I found at the Whitney Library at the New Haven Museum. Wow. And it blew me away because that was the first book I saw before I even knew that there was an 1825 edition. I had found the 1855 just by merely calling the library and speaking to Jim Campbell, who was then the curator. Uh-huh. And I said, by chance, do you happen to know of this book, William Grimes, a runaway slave brought down to the present? He said, well, let me check. And he put this on hold for a little while. And he came back. He goes, well, we do have the 1855 edition. And he it, it, there's an image of him. I almost dropped the phone. 
I had I never believed that I would see what this man looked like. Oh my God! But wait, so let's not. I don't want to paint the picture that he got free and stayed free. He got the freedom and then got captured. Absolutely. And then bought his freedom. Yes. And then came to New Haven. Absolutely. William Grimes had 10 masters over the years. He was sold away from his mom at age 10. His final master was in Savannah, Georgia. He escaped while his owner, Master Wilman, was in Bermuda on business. And by then, William Grimes was an urban slave, so he had mobility. And his master said, look, you get out there, hire your time, which meant go seek work, get paid for it, and then pay me. So he um, did that. While his master was gone, he really, it wasn't even in his head to run away, but he was, uh, he went down to the harbor and got work and met up with some Yankee sailors, and and they convinced him to steal away on this ship. The casket, and he did, and he um, I was the ship docked in uh, New York, and uh, he essentially got his freedom that way. And he lived. Let me just say this: and after he got to New York, he made his way to um, Connecticut, and he lived in. New Haven, Litchfield, all over New England, essentially, for nine years, constantly looking over his shoulder, constantly fearful of being apprehended. And after nine years, his master did finally pin him down and sent an emissary to retrieve him. That's extraordinary that they would spend nine years searching for him, like hunting him. Right, and and he would run into people that knew his master. So as the minute he he'd get, um, you know, they'd run into him. He'd just pack up and and just start running, you know, to another town trying to get away. And he, I don't think he ever slept a peaceful night in his bed, all because he was always fearful of being apprehended. So anyway, he um, he's faced with a dilemma and by this time he's a husband he has children he's he's a property owner and he's got a business wow and he has to give up all of that in order to secure his freedom he writes a very bitter story he's really angry at uh at america but it's a justifiable anger right like I, I I would be suspect if he was like happy. I mean, he'd have to be <laughs> right. Like he would have I to be know. angry because freedom is not his. Right. Right. And, and to give up your livelihood, your um, home, the roof over your children's heads. I mean, just for freedom and a freedom that wasn't fully recognized yeah at that yeah he talks about how hard it was to make it in the quote unquote free north you know so the the, the north wasn't 
you know, it wasn't the land of, of milk and honey as it was portrayed to be. So, so Regina, in learning about this history, right, how did you, how did this change you? Like, what did it do to you? I mean, it's one thing to be a fifth grader writing and uh, uh, doing a, a school project on ancestry. It's another thing to be a grown woman in the world working, doing whatever it is you do and and having the story sort of chase you to the point where you you got to turn around and say, you know what, let me let me see what I can find out. Find out what you find out and and share this story. How how has it changed your I guess your everyday practical life? How how does that work? First of all, I know who I am. I am so grounded and rooted in this country. But more than that, this narrative freed me. And what I mean by that is that I looked at this man and I saw his virtues. And those things transferred to me. Imagine me walking around not knowing this information. I'd be as clueless as I was in fifth grade, not feeling at all good about who I was and where I came from and my roots. But I found a story that um, just is testimony to the will of the human spirit. And in this man, his virtues transferred to me. I had no idea that one day I would edit a slave narrative and, and be a writer. But I found out that it was in me because it was in William Grimes. I had no idea that I'd be speaking on camp, college campuses throughout the United States and then even um, in Europe. I had no idea that that was in me, that I was capable of that. But then I realized where I came from and who <laughs> I was related to. And I knew that if it was in him, it was in me. So it changed my life dramatically. It, uh, the, the narrative, his voice, uh, his trials and his triumphs told me, you know, we are equipped. We are fully equipped. We may not have all the answers to get where we want to go. They will come. They will definitely come. All we have to do is be emboldened. All we have to do is give ourselves permission. And I that's that's the message here. This man is just a, a remarkable example of knowing Yourself, mm-hmm. and and we have to be true to ourselves, and we have to know ourselves and what we are capable of. So, so it seems to me, you know, because we, you know, of late we've seen a lot of slave-inspired stories and films, and right. some people feel some kind of way about that. Some people are like, you know, can we get? Can, why can't we get past? The slave stories. I, I, I don't. I don't know if we can get past them because we have not. We've not gotten to the depth of these stories. I think this particular story, though, um, is a game changer in the sense that it pushes out those false narratives of 
uh, who we were as in, enslaved Africans and who we were striving to be out of slavery. At, at least that's how I feel. Like we just weren't happy black people trying to like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like so much of the slave stories are injustice kind of porn. And, <laughs> but it never right. sort of tells our, it tells a story, but not our story. And this is a story that's our story. And mm-hmm. it has a lot of, uh, empowering components to it up against great odds right i don't you feel that you said this right no i will tell you the difference in this story first of all it is it has redeeming qualities yes yes what i mean by that it doesn't end on a sour note yes (laughs) i mean I, i i look at uh, 12 Years a Slave, and I thought it was a phenomenal picture. But I, I walked away so mad, so angry, so upset. But the difference with this movie is that the descendants of the slaves reclaimed this story and then turned around and... Uh, Shared it with the world. Mm-hmm. Not first of all, it is it it reads the book reads graphically. It is a horror story. There's no question about it. But that was the institution of slavery. We can't sugarcoat that. Right. We have to tell it like it is. Right. But here is a man that from the south who wrote his story, and he was the first man of color to write about slavery in the south. From a slave's perspective, that had never been done before. So white people got to see for the first time what Southern slavery looked like. Mm-hmm. Not from, not as told by the the white man, but told by a black man who didn't have a voice, but he showed out with his voice anyway. So it's revolutionary. And the redeeming quality is this, that... And I like to say this. Uh, first of all, genealogy for African Americans has the power to reclaim what was once denied. When we recover the lives of, pe- of people deemed marginal and insignificant, we give them voice and honor. And by extension, they fortify us and help make us whole. And that is what my search for family has done for me. I think that's, I think that is critical. And you know, Regina, I think that is the missing piece in all these so-called slave stories, or as I like to call them, slave porn, that it doesn't, it doesn't, we don't come away feeling empowered. We come away feeling exhausted, you know, And, and I'm not suggesting and that mad. and angry, not suggesting that this ought to be a fairy tale and it ought to have a happy ending. But God knows mm-hmm. there are some stories that people um, achieved and survived against great odds. And we don't get to hear those kinds of stories. We always hear, you know, those stories where we are right. dragged back and dragged back and dragged back. And we never sort of push forward. So I, right. 
I, I, you know, I haven't watched Twelve Years of Slave before for that reason because I couldn't, I could never get myself geared up enough. <laughs> I couldn't get my spirit protected mm-hmm. enough to sit through. I mean, I sat through Roots, and I thought I was overwhelmed by <laughs> by that. So I was like, I don't know right. if I could. And right. then I saw, you know, uh, Django Unchained or whatever that was. And I thought, I can't, I can't do these stories, you know. <laughs> <laughs> no, I feel you on that. And a lot of people feel the same way. But again, and I'm not saying that my story is for everyone. But what I am saying is I'm encouraging you to find your own story because it will strengthen you uh-huh. to know where you come from and, and how your people overcame a lot just so that we can be here where we are today. And we owe them a bit of homage. And to know that this man wrote the first fugitive slave narrative in American history, um, I mean, if he wrote his story, and a lot of, uh, of their slave narratives out there, I think there are a few hundred Yes, there's there's quite a few. I um, I uh, I'm I I stumbled across love letters of slaves to each other. There's a book of that, and I actually love those um, because that shows a kind of humanity that you never see us as okay. people and us as in love and loving, even against great odds and even in the face of enslavement. Uh, that there's these wonderful handwritten letters that went back yes. and forth from plantation to wherever people were um, and extraordinary feats of getting these letters to loved ones, which is his own story. Uh, I'm enamored of that. So I admire this Absolutely. story, this story, your family story um, a great deal because I can only imagine how challenging and difficult to do this, like to to run, to be on the run and writing <laughs> or to be on the yeah. run and trying to re- recall everything. And that's I, I don't know. That's no easy. That can't be an easy thing. It's not like he no, went to the country not. and wrote a book. He I mean, he was running. And reliving through the pages of his book all of the the misery that he had gone through and so forth. But what I had to do was desensitize myself from all of the the beatings and so forth because I understood that was the reality of slave life. And how did you do that? I want you to tell me about that. How did you handle reading this and not like, you know, Oh, Lose your well, mind. Tell you, I, I, <laughs> I couldn't get through it the first couple times. But I, I forced myself because I had to know, is this my history? Is this man, is he related to me? So I had to read the book about five or six times. Wow. To then strip away all of the, the beatings to, to really narrow down the story and to see his humanity, 
his virtues, his wishes, his dreams and desires. He says in his book, if I had been given a chance, I would have done so much more with my life because I was a fast learner. You know, to hear those kinds of little pieces really struck a nerve with me. Um, the beatings, yes, they were horrific. The slave life, horrific. No question about it. Mm-hmm. And he makes. But I wanted to get to the core of this man, and and I was able to do that. And then I thought, you know, his story needs to be told for another generation, a new generation, because I didn't know this man. He's just as history worthy as George Washington. Absolutely, or in my eyes, I think more so. so. Another reason, yeah. So I want his story told. I want people to know who he was. I'm sorry, I do a lot of talking. Oh no, I I love that. (laughs) No, girl, I need you to talk. So I, the other thing that I like about this story is that he dispels this myth of the North being such the freedom-loving part, uh, you know, as though they had, as though the North, there's this myth that the North somehow embraced freedom <laughs> and that right. if people could only get to the North, freedom would be theirs. <laughs> that was not the case. Not the case at all. He was constantly cheated out of money, constantly fighting with uh, poor whites for just a stake at the table or or a a job or what have you. So, um, and imagine when he was able to buy property there, it was just an outrage. It had to have been because white people around him who were poorer than he felt that they were better than him and that he had no right to have more than what they had. So he was constantly fighting about that. But see, he had a, a an occupation that white people just thought was beneath him, and that was a barber. He was a barber. Really? He went into, to Litchfield, where there was no barber, and he set up shots and had all kinds of business. And that infuriated the lower class white people around him because they didn't have what he had. And so, yes, it, it was it was tough in the North. And he doesn't even recommend the quote-unquote free North to people that are enslaved. <laughs> you know, it is hard out here. And if you're running away, you're going to get recaptured anyway. That has been my uh plight in life. Wow. So 18, so the 1800s was looking very much like 2017 in a lot of ways with this whole yes. dealing with folks don't want you to have anything. Folks don't well, want you to be maybe, better than you. Folks who are lesser educated than you and lesser whatever feel some kind of way of it, your accomplishment it, and your achievement. That is very real today. Right. It is. And another thing that is very real is when I look at the undocumented people in this country. Girl, I was just going to make that statement. And I realize that every every night they must be looking over their shoulders. Every night, afraid. And who's going to turn them in? Neighbors and shop owners and and folks who mean them no 
good. Right. And we're talking about decent people that are trying to just make it in this world. Yeah. And that's all William Grimes was trying to do. Yeah. Yeah. So when you go and talk about this uh, around wherever you go and all the places that you go, um, what are the what are the questions like? How do people receive this story? Well, the number one question that I get, first of all, we have received nothing but love about this film. I imagine there are people that, you know, can't get into it. They haven't expressed that to us vocally, and, and but I understand there's that element out there. But the majority of the audiences that they have just absolutely um, embraced this film and so happy to have this film because there's a redeeming quality about this film. You, you don't walk away angry you feel empowered, and then you start thinking about your own history. What do I know about myself? You know, so that's the feeling we get. And the number one question about William Grimes is how did he learn how to read and write? Yeah. And I, you know, if I, if I had one minute with this man, I would ask him that same question Who taught you? So he doesn't emphatically say in his book, but he leaves lots of clues. And uh, there's one incident when he's a teenager on the Thornton plantation and Master Thornton puts a, a stove in the slave quarters and the mortar is still green. Well, he's writing letters and, and, and words on the mortar. And he gets this huge, this severe beating for it. But he didn't say whether he got this beating because he knew how to write um, or whether he got it because he damaged the uh, the stove hmm. or the master's property. But I imagine that it was a combination of both. Mm-hmm. And then later on, when he's in Savannah, uh, he is working for a doctor, and he's accused of writing an unflattering note about the doctor. Whoa. And that really, that, but he swore up and down. I didn't, he said he didn't do it. He didn't do it. And, and um, what was interesting was not the fact that this letter was there, this note. It, what interests me was the fact that everybody around him knew that he was capable of writing that. Yeah. So he, he leaves clues as to being a literate man, but he doesn't really say how he learned or acquired the skill set. Then at the end of the book, he thanks his wife, who was a free woman of color from Connecticut. Really? Um, yes, and, and fairly educated. And he thanked her for helping him, I guess, you know, for her tolerable good education. So um, that was an eye-opener for me as well. But certainly early on in his life, he had picked up the bare bones of reading and writing. So how did he come to be buried in the Grove Street Cemetery? Do you know? That man was bold and courageous. (laughs) Right, because that's that's a, you know, this, that cemetery is like, I know who's who. 
<laughs> right. It is very exclusive. And he found a way to get in there. He talked about in his narrative how he he bought Grace Space, and when he went to really son, they told him he didn't own any property there, and, and he was just completely outraged. But he doesn't say in the book whether or not that was rectified, and whether it was um, the Grove Street Cemetery. But I imagine that it was giving the the when I pay things on a timeline. But anyway, he is in that cemetery. His entire family is buried in that cemetery. Really? Like I told you. <laughs> yes. That you know like grave buying cemetery stuff. That's a I only heard that with black people that will buy plot family plots like that. Like my family has done right. that. That's a very black thing. I don't know white people do that, but I've never heard of it. But I know that that's a very black thing. Well, I will tell you this, that the Grove Street Cemetery was the first cemetery in American history where you could buy family plots. So he had enough in him to to buy this. And there's evidence that he bought his family plot. For a hundred dollars, that was big money back in. That is, in the this day, is right? fascinating. Oh my god! And then when you when you see this tombstone, I don't know what else to call it, or headstone, it looks like a monument. It is enormous compared to what I thought I was going to look at, and all of the family names are etched all around. Really? It. And it was only by accident that I even found it. Wow! Only by accident. And now that's another. That's that, another destination. Know, it just because it just goes to show you how this man knew exactly. He was who way ahead of his was. time, Regina. I mean, he re- he really was way ahead of his time. Do you feel he that? He's just a bold man. Yeah, I do. I do. But I also want to say this too, and you can see it in his book that there were psychological implications of being enslaved. Oh, absolutely. And what that looked like. Absolutely. And being uh, fearful of apprehension every day of his life. The level and of stress. The level of, I'm sure the level of stress has trickled yes. down through the DNA with high blood pressure. I, I have you no know, doubt. You know, that is very interesting. And I have not thought about that, but you know, there, there's, probably truth to that i read a story i read a piece regina that talked about the middle passage and the fact that the middle passage changed the dna of enslaved africans so much so that it caused us as people of color in this country or just about anywhere in the world to have high to to have a propensity for high blood pressure seriously like Medical wow. people wrote this. And I was like, what? So that tells wow. you the nature and how heinous the nature of right. enslavement is and was. Yes. Wow, that is so fascinating. So, so fascinating. yes. So he, psychological issues, lots of them, I'm sure. Uh, yes, well, you can, the fear factor, the, the, the fear of being apprehended, the fear of, of uh, 
just not knowing if today was going to be the day. I mean, you cannot rest a night if you are uh, always looking over your shoulder. And if you you have a family... it's to marry a free woman of color because the the status of enslavement followed the condition of the mother. So if your mother was born free, that meant that your children were going to be free. Oh, so, now but, that but I did know not what? know. I did not know that. Yes. So his mother was enslaved, which meant that was his status. So he by marrying a free woman of color meant that the children would be uh, free, even though he was enslaved. But you know, we all know that um, there are no laws out there that uh, white men were bound to respect. So even though they were free children, there was a there was a threat of even his children being dragged into slavery. yeah. Because uh, who was going to stop them? Like who right. who would stop right. white men from dragging off your children? And you saying, I'm free, therefore my children are free, and they could just drag you off too. Right. And it happened left and right. There were free people that were apprehended by bounty hunters. hunters, And, you know, we, you did see that with 12 years of a slave. So. Well, that I have... the reality. Well, you will be here screening this film Monday, February 5th, which is timely because this is February, as you know, was Black History Month. So we get all the black stuff in, which I'm excited about. Um, But you'll be screening it at the New Haven Museum on Monday at 530. It's a free event. Um, It's in partnership with the Amistad Committee and Friends of Grove Street Cemetery. And there will be a question and answer and a book signing. I'm going to get me a book and I want my signed. Oh, yes, indeed. I can't wait. (laughs) I'm going to make my way to the Beinecke to see the original one. And I'm going to go take a tour of the cemetery because I I think I need to go pay homage to uh, Mr. Grimes. Thank you. Thank you. Beth, this has been wonderful speaking with you. Thank you, Regina. I'm so delighted to be on your show. Thank you. I really enjoyed this conversation. I so look forward to meeting you in person. And uh, I wish you every success. And as you tour this country and talk about your family story. I hope people receive it with all the best intentions and that maybe somebody will hear this story and feel empowered to sort of go dig through their roots. Well, thank you. And I hope that as well. That was lovely. Thank you so much for the well wishes. Well, I will see you on Monday, my dear. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Looking forward to it. Oh, thank you. Thank you again. Take good care, Miss Mason. <laughs> okay, Harry, I'm about to jump out of here. Miss Mason is uh, on her way out, and I'm on my way out. And thank you all for listening to Love Babs Love Talk on 103.5 uh, FM, WNHH, live streaming on the New Haven Independent. You can come back and listen to it later on today as a podcast. I will see you all on Monday. Have a fabulous weekend. We'll